Today on Heavy Networking, sponsor Juniper Networks talks about software-defined networking for service providers in the context of cloud providers. Wait, I just said software-defined networking. Is that a blast from the past? Is SDN even a thing anymore? Yeah, you know, SDN is a thing. In fact, the original SDN model of a centralized control plane programming a distributed forwarding or data plane, that's pretty much everywhere these days. In fact, SDN is a major solution component to the challenge of deploying secure networks to support apps in multi-tenant environments. And if that sounds like I just throw a bunch of buzzwords at you, we're going to get into some details here as we go forward. We're going to start with the big ideas around service provider and cloud provider network services in 2022 and how they collide and are complementary, and then get an update on Juniper's Contrail product. A quick preview of the Contrail discussion, by the way, is that it is Kubernetes native via CNI now. Ooh. Our guest is Sean Legan, a product manager at Juniper. And we did a prep call with Sean to get ready for this episode. And Greg and I promise you, Sean is a nerd's nerd. Sean, Welcome to heavy networking. And okay, I said cloud native networking in the intro, Sean, because it's not just networking as packet nerds have thought of. So, can you explain why cloud native networking is something I should be understanding and thinking about? What is going on here that merits a unique discussion? Yeah, great, great question, uh, Ethan, and, and happy to join you folks. Um, you know, cloud native networking, there's, there's, can sometimes a lot of things packed into terms in our industry. And, um, you know, I think it, it's kind of helpful to just take a quick look at what that means from an application kind of approach. And really what we're seeing for, for modern cloud native application development is, is typically based around Kubernetes, right? So different uh, customers are leveraging Kubernetes to turn around and deploy their application sets. And then we run into some challenges about how does networking Kubernetes work? Um, and it's a little bit different than kind of what we're used to uh, necessarily is, is, you know, the, the packet nerds of the physical networks, we're getting into cluster networking, we're getting into how applications, uh, distributed applications get deployed at greater scale. Um, and so, you know, Kubernetes, it, it, it specifies networking requirements, but it actually leaves the implementation of those up to third party plugins and, and they call those the CNIs, right? So Kubernetes kind of says, Hey, here's a couple different, uh, different requirements that we're going to have on the network. Uh, you install the Kubernetes cluster, you end up with these different pods that are running. Mm. Um, and now you kind of need these pods to turn around and, and talk to one another. Um, and so how does that get done? And, and that's really where cloud native networking steps in. So what happens with Kubernetes, as I understand it, is it sort of leaves networking up to other people. It's got some basic networking in it. It's kind of like you can attach all the containers to a VLAN kind of thing, which is it kind of works, but it's kind of dumb. Good enough for a laptop, though. But the container network interface allows a modular approach to attaching more sophisticated networking to Kubernetes. Is that the general idea? Yeah, that's right. That's a really good, really good way to kind of look at it. Um, you know, the 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 kind of baseline approach that you mentioned. It's a lot of things are kind of around some IP tables and some older older uh, constructs within Linux that um, are not fun to deal with, and so. <laughs> When you get to the, uh, you know, when you get to kind of this, this, um, this plugin approach with with a CNI, uh, things kind of vary, right? Now, the nice part is that it really leaves the option up to, um, you know, those people deploying the Kubernetes infrastructure to kind of figure out which, which model they want to go with. Um, mm. And so, you know, but there's there's some things to be concerned about here. So, you know, if you don't kind of understand the networking model in Kubernetes, you can really leave yourself up to some some problems down the road uh, unwillingly. You know, default behavior, for example, is to just allow traffic between any two pods in the cluster to, to communicate to one another. That 
sounds nice to just make things work. Uh, you can imagine in a production environment, uh, if you're worried about things like lateral attacks and threats, and once somebody gets in your cluster and the behavior is, hey, we just allow anything to talk to anything, um, mm. it's, a bit, it's a bit problematic. So, you know, there's different tools to kind of address that. There's things like network yeah. policy that you can do um, a little bit as well. But yeah, I guess, I guess what I was trying to say is that Kubernetes has networking, but it's very overly simplistic. You want multi-tenancy, you want micro-segmentation, you want policy control, you want to put firewalls or security policies in place, you want visibility and monitoring tools because, you know, when every container is attached to a VLAN as a metaphor, no visibility, no traffic monitoring, no path control, no security sort of stuff. And that's where CNIs, I think, come in. People sort of mistake the CNI interface as, you know, maybe I don't need that. And I'm saying for any for just about every use case, you need a CNI plugin or a networking strategy to solve it and scale it up. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, that's absolutely right. You do for for any use case where you want to start mm -hmm. doing cluster networking, you're going to need the, the CNI plugin. And this is where Contrail comes in because Contrail is a full, at a very simplistic level, a, a networking technology to make containers work the way you think you want them. So you know, isolation, multi-segments, control, visibility. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. So, you know, Contrail kind of got its, uh, cut its teeth for quite some time around the OpenStack environment. So we've learned a lot alongside the the developer community of turning around and building out clouds. Um, so, you know, we've, we've really taken Contrail now um, and made it more cloud native, shifting it towards uh, a Kubernetes approach that provides a lot of those things that you just, you know, talked about, right? So... Mm. Uh, concepts around multi-tenancy at a network layer. Um, so this is beyond just a, a namespace type of isolation, but actually providing multi-tenancy through uh, pretty much bring uh, concepts that a lot of us on the network side are familiar with, like VRFs and things along those nature, but into the uh, into the Kubernetes environment. Well, wait a minute. Why do I? So let me take a contrarian position here, Sean. Why do I actually need Contrail or whatever other CNI provider I might choose to? do that. If I'm a service provider, I've had MPLS for years and I've been able to deliver multi-tenancy end to end for a long time. What what's different here that I'm supposed to be getting excited about? Yeah, great great question. So really the difference here is about changing the way that that applications and services in the service provider environment gets developed and that's turning around to, you know, make those a little bit more on the cloud native side and the agility that that brings you um, as well as scaling things out. Um, and so with that, when you start looking at, okay, I have all these containers deployed and all these different little functions, and I need a way to kind of manage all that stuff because now I have a lot of things that are very distributed within my environment. And then you need a way to make them all communicate. So the way to manage it all absolutely is, is uh, Kubernetes tends to be the uh, de facto standard today. The way to make them communicate um, you still need a CNI to do that. Even the mm -hmm. physical layer network is not going to provide you um, the capabilities to kind of do that, especially in a robust manner. There's some solutions out there that they kind of they kind of provide a, a CNI plugin that turns around and ties back into kind of like we were mentioning earlier, the, the VLAN on the underlying network. That's a really, really tight integration between your physical network and your Kubernetes cluster. And, and the whole idea behind the Kubernetes cluster is you want agility within software development. And so if you're making that tie down to your physical network, you're not really getting that agility that your developers are looking for. 
Um, Cause you're over there having to make network changes to a physical network fabric, for example, to, to respond to that. It's a bit of a difference in how, what services service providers are actually offering. When we're talking about Kubernetes and Kubernetes clusters, we're talking about needing to provide that same multi-tenancy and separation of duties and security that we did for our, the, the customers just connecting all the way out to the CE. Now we're talking about needing to deliver applications in a multi-tenant fashion on top of Kubernetes. And so the old things that we did with MPLS and stuff, that's not the thing that's going to get us there. We need a different animal. And and so now we're we're dealing with all these different instantiations, dealing with, as you put it, cluster networking. Yeah, that, that's right. And so, you know, our approach on that actually has been to take some of the things on the network side. Some of that is, is familiar concepts around MPLS and multi-tenancy and bring those concepts into Kubernetes. We just do it in a cloud-native way. So we're not saying, hey, we're going to lift and shift the the MPLS capabilities that, you know, we know and love off of our hardware-based routers and just put those in your Kubernetes cluster. What we're really doing here is we're leveraging things like MPLS over UDP as an encapsulation mechanism, um, also VXLAN encapsulation. But this is supported in the overlay, um, bringing forth the, the multi-tenant type of network connectivity in that cluster. So if you think about it, the whole idea behind the, the Kubernetes cluster and the, that whole approach to developing applications is to distribute that out and, and uh, keep it abstracted away from the physical underlying infrastructure. You want to be able to develop things and not worry about what host they're sitting on, per se. You just want to be able to turn around and make a make a um, configuration statement that says, I want to deploy these applications, uh, and this is the scale set that I want them to deploy to, mm-hmm. and you need everything else underneath that to just respond to it. Well, if you just have one big flat network that's kind of providing all the connectivity between those different uh those different clusters. There's some security concerns that are involved there. There's also some level mm-hmm. of, um, you know, of, of how do I forward traffic in kind of a controlled manner uh, between these different environments, right? You're going to have maybe a dev environment, a prod environment. You know, we're we're a long ways from having that all sit on, uh, you know, physically isolated, separated infrastructure with big firewalls in between them. So you're not saying that all the service provider network infrastructure is broken. It's just that now that delivering applications on top of that has become ever more important to so that service providers are making their money, we've got to extend what we used to do with all these additional capabilities. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, that's absolutely right. So they still get to turn around and leverage in the service provider area. You still leverage the infrastructure that has been in place. You still leverage... Uh, the WANs and the networks that they've turned around and built out. This is really about delivering more of the advanced services um, that are sitting on top of that. And so those could be a couple of different things. Uh, you know, you could say, hey, I want to be able to spin up, you know, we have this large customer that came to us and they want us to be able to spin up this type of um, network service or application that may be a little bit new, uh, something that the service provider is exploring. How do you do that without, you know, taking hundreds of years and costing thousands of lives to make that done? And <laughs> and coming back to them <laughs> later on, right? Yeah. Um, you need that to be agile. And the service providers also need to, you know, not have a bunch of sunken CapEx costs and just trying to prove something out. And so this is where uh, the the benefits of the cloud native development really help in this space, um, you know, to be able to make that a lot more agile. So here's here's another question. Now, the cloud providers are doing a lot of this and have been doing this. It's kind of kind of their bread and butter, especially if we look at the SaaS and PaaS stuff. Are service providers, is there competition here? Is there tension between service providers and cloud providers in providing application level services? Or is it kind of like, it's more like 
complimentary. They're, you know, we service providers provide these sorts of things, NFVs and stuff, uh, as opposed to what the cloud providers are providing, which is higher up the stack. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both, right? Um, and we're seeing we're seeing that quite a bit. Recent announcement at at reInvent, for example, was the uh, AWS's private five G offering, right? So um, they have a private five G offering into the enterprise space uh, now, and and service providers are also turning around and taking a look across the board at, you know, what's kind of the right balance? How do they partnership with with some of the cloud providers? You know what does that look like, and what are the trade-offs to to doing that? Um, service providers are you know in in a bit of a unique space compared to others that use the cloud in here. And what what does that mean? Well, they have all the infrastructure in place, right? They're de they're delivering based upon infrastructure that they've uh, they've developed and, and matured over some time, right? There was you know not that long ago, you know, it was a big thing in the industry to come in and say how many buildings were on net for a service mm. provider, right? And how much mm. fiber they ran out to those, those uh, areas. And, you know, in the networking world, as much as we abstract and virtualize things and do all these things to move stuff away, the one thing I like to always come back to is at the end of the day, like a packet has to get put on a wire and sent to another location. And you just can't get rid of that. Mm. Um, that has to happen. And so this is where service providers really provide um, some unique services in here. And so, you know, the goal here, if, if, if I'm a service provider looking at this, the areas to really learn from here on the hyperscalers is, is really about the way that they've built some infrastructure and the way that the applications are being developed. That's the lessons to kind of learn if I'm the service provider when I'm looking at this. I think also the interesting part about service providers is that up until now, their infrastructure has been very static. They buy a box, it goes into a rack, it lives there for 20, 30, 40 years, attaches to the same service that existed for decade after decade, you know, and the whole game was defined by how long you could avoid a truck roll. They even had a name <laughs> for right. upgrading called a truck roll, right? That's right. Can you imagine you need a truck to go and do an update or to fix, you know, and and the the modern era is seeing something very different. We're seeing CDN providers say we want to put uh nodes in our in the content delivery network in the 5G tower, or we want to discuss this. Or we're seeing various companies develop serverless platforms that exist at the edge of the network. And they're saying, well, if we could put them in the 5G base station. So all of a sudden, the nature of a 5G pop went from something that would, you know, the 3G and 4G was a, a custom rack from a custom company full of custom hardware running up to a custom, wire, you know, antenna array with a bunch of analog rate. And the modern one is now uh, antenna array. As soon as the signal comes off, it gets digitized. And software-defined radio is how they read the signal. And, mm -hmm. and now we're talking about VMs and containers to be able to do content logging and user authentication and handle from tower to tower and all this sort of stuff. And it just, and then what they're saying is, well, if we've already got VMs and containers, maybe we can sell space to Cloudflare, AWS for their CDN and so forth. There's a massive transition where suddenly Kubernetes and and the and the networking tools that are associated. This is where Contrail comes in. Being able to provide a multi-tenant networking environment for that is is where we're headed. I think. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's it, to your exact point, Greg. It's like, how does a service provider spin up a, an environment that they can turn around and have a, a one of their customers or a partner mm -hmm. um, deploy and qualify and test out some services on that in a, in a really agile manner without doing that truck roll, right? So, yeah. how do they do that? Um, and respond quickly 
to basically kind of the market needs, right? And and you make it where experimentation is something that can be consumable uh, without large expenses. And so, you know, it's it's this this Kubernetes-based cloud native kind of telco cloud is what we call it, the telco cloud ability um, to provide a platform that can turn around and do that. And that does extend down to the edge as well, you know, is, is to that 5G tower, as you're mentioning. But uh, yeah. Let's not put too fine a point on it here, Sean, but though, if, if service providers, it, well, as Greg, as you were saying, <laughs> put it in a rack and let it rot there for the next four decades <laughs> yeah. until we bleed yeah. every penny possible out of it. If, if, yeah. if they don't get away from that mindset, over time, there is going to be a lack of ability to compete. If you look at what AWS is doing, 100%. They, they've got, um, you know, we didn't mention the new, I believe it's called the SiteLink service, where it's like, you want to use us as your backbone and you've got direct connect circuits, you can. You're going to pay for it. There's still good egress charges and all of that. That hasn't changed. Mm. But it, they're, AWS is basically saying, if you get enough pipes into us from your remote offices, you don't need a separate service provider anymore. We'll do all the things for you. I mean, there's still a tail circuit there, I guess, right? But if I'm a service provider looking at AWS offering this, I'm going, geez, now what do we do? Because what happens when my customer that's been on my network for so long with all this recurring revenue walks away? I mean, SD-WAN was early in the game here, kind of uh, making that challenge for service providers. If all I need to give them is a broadband internet circuit, I don't have any margin on that. So what what do they do to stay competitive? What does a service provider do to stay competitive? You're arguing one thing is over the top services adopt um, you know this agile methodology to bring applications online so you can test them and bring them to market with low investment, and then you've got something you can use to stay competitive. If they don't do that, are they not competitive, Sean? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a real concern there, right? If you're just providing the tail circuit to get to the cloud provider for your customer to route all their traffic over their backbone, that's a pretty, you know, I mean, I would look at that. That's a that's a pretty daunting kind of future, right? And so it, it does require some additional investments. It's not just the time for status quo. Um, it requires some kind of additional investments and really taking, you know, like I said, right, a real different approach. Uh, when we think about cloud, I mean, you know, fundamentally, I kind of think of cloud as like, it, it's an operating model, right? If we think about the, the model of saying, hey, how do I operate with cloud-like services? Um, you can use someone else's infrastructure to go do that. And, and we've mm-hmm. seen this in the enterprise space, right? There's how many stories of lift and shift to the, to the cloud, and then the organizations don't really quite get the desired outcome that they had because they didn't change their operating model. All they did was move the VM from an x86 box sitting inside their data center to, to an, an x86, x86 box, box sitting outside. <laughs> Someone else's <laughs> x86 box in. <laughs> right, right, exactly, right? And so it, it's the work of changing that that operating model to be cloud native. Um, it, it, it's That's really the key. Um, and there's, can, look, there's can better I ask you a little. Can I ask a little? I, I, wanna, I just want to ask a weird question here. Um, one of the interesting things about Juniper is how Juniper has turned around to me in the, in the last two, three years. And it's gone from that, big iron for service providers, routers, you know, big routers to software everywhere and, and embrace the cloud native principles, which is flexibility, reusability, you know, software can programmability. And, you know, we've seen plenty of vendors stumble to get it right. And there's been a few hit makeups. I mean, what's that been like inside Juniper for you as a, as a, as a worker there to see that transition go through? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great question. Cause this is, 
exactly what we've done with Contrails. We've had mm-hmm. to make it cloud native. So mm-hmm. we haven't just said, let me go provide this little plugin um, as a CNI. We've actually turned around and we've taken Contrail and this extension of, of Kubernetes, right? We rebuilt it um, from really the ground up. So, so we've done this exact thing specifically within Contrail. And that's just one of the products within Juniper to your, to your point, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's multiple others as well. Um, it's been interesting. It's been it's been uh, challenging at times for sure. But we've also mm. seen the areas in which we're able to turn around and, and deliver um, and respond faster to our own customer demands, right? Which is what yeah. this is all about, and being able to assist them in solving problems a little bit more. So, yeah, we we know firsthand. We actually have quite a few different projects, even internally, that are based upon um, Kubernetes. And then you know here with uh, you know as I said with Contrail, right? Of you know, now our control in our config plane is, is custom controllers within Kubernetes. We're yeah. using etcd as a data store, uh, right? We're using CRDs and those types of things to um, mm-hmm. do configuration. And it's more of a declarative nature of how Contrail gets configured. Um, but we still have our distributed data plane as well, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sitting on all the on all the hosts. So, yeah, it, it, you know, it's it's definitely been an interesting transition, but we feel like we're in a really good spot. Uh, as far as this goes. And, and a lot of that is just honest conversations with our customers and yeah. a level of transparency uh, there as well. It's got to have been a bumpy journey too. I mean, it must be tough for an organization Absolutely. to turn around from from where we, you know, like, this is just as much for your customers as it is for Juniper. So don't, you know, but that turning around from that, you know, shipping boxes in, you know, big piles of metal, you know, with custom ethics to this flexible, fluid, ever-changing. I mean, that's the secret to Kubernetes and and especially why you want a flexible networking capabilities. You actually don't know where Kubernetes is going to go. Most people don't even know what they want. They just know they want Kubernetes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. And, and and I think, you know, the other the other kind of aspect of that that we've seen too is like we get to bring the rich ecosystem of Kubernetes, you know, the, if anybody goes and looks at the, the CNCF landscape, right. It's like, Oh my God, what are, what are all these projects? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it, you know, and I have a hard time, like I don't keep up with all of them and it's uh, impossible, but you know, we're able to leverage that ecosystem. So if Prometheus and Grafana is what you want to use, right. If you want to take a, we have Contrail pipelines. It's a GitOps approach to leveraging Contrail as an example. Um, hmm. We're able to say, okay, Let's leverage the ecosystem that's out there of different tools that are available within this this uh, cloud native ecosystem, and and bring those to bear, and and uh, customers can use those if they like, and they can also tie in their own as uh, as well that they want to bring in. Sean, there's a, there's an elephant in the room we haven't talked about that yet though, and that's OpenStack. So we've been like sort of beaten up, sir. are like you guys are all stuck <laughs> in the past and you all suck. But there are a lot of a uh, lot of service providers that adopted OpenStack and were kind of ahead of the curve on cloud native and all of that using that. So what does that mean for? Because we've been just saying Kubernetes like it's the only thing that exists. Are, are are we seeing service providers that are transitioning from OpenStack to Kubernetes, or they live alongside each other? What's happening there? Yeah, no, there's there's a bit of both. You know, we see OpenStack still broadly, like for some people that aren't in the service provider environment, um, and, and we see it in enterprise too, but we see OpenStack still broadly adopted in a lot of different organizations today. So yeah, a lot of these ideas around, um, you know, kind of building out a cloud model is not necessarily new. Uh, we see this across a broad set of customers. Again, this is enterprise and service provider 
there's still a lot of, we're seeing some people also double down on OpenStack, right? So I don't think it's going away anytime soon either. And, but there's also these Kubernetes-based projects that are kind of getting brought up, uh, you know, as, as well. And so there's an element here of, okay, how do these live alongside one another? Um, there is an element uh, here as well, when they look at uh, third-party vendors that, that provide them their VNFs, you know, they're kind of working with those vendors and, and we are too to push them along to start containerizing some of those things. But doing it, the key there is not just containerizing it with fat containers, but actually in a cloud native way with lightweight containers and taking it from a VNF to truly a, a CNF. Yeah, there's there's going to be these environments for sure for a while now that that OpenStack and Kubernetes are going to sit by side by side. And that brings forth some some additional challenges as well. And so, you know, on the on the one of them is is networking, right? How do I do I really want all my traffic to go, you know, completely out of my cluster back into my physical network and then route back into my other Kubernetes cluster, for example? And and how do I keep security policy intact across that whole line, right? Like how many different devices do I need to go configure? What does that look like? Um, so Contrail, we're still keeping the Neutron plugin. We're still keeping our support for OpenStack. Um, we have a rich partnership with various different, uh, you know, OpenStack providers in the ecosystem, whether that's, uh, you know, Red Hat and, and Canonical and others. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's still in place. You're still going to see those two things live alongside each other, I think for, uh, you know, for quite some time. But Just because OpenStack's out of fashion doesn't mean people aren't using it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so one of, you did really you, position it as a, as a transition, though, Sean, you know, from one fashion to the next. We've got this transitional period, it, it sounds like, as opposed to OpenStack's got a home forever. It sounds more like, now nah, we're going to convert the whole ecosystem and we'll end up delivering CNFs instead of VNFs. And it's all going to be built around containers and, and Kubernetes and OpenStack, in theory, would fade away over time. I, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think there will be a time that OpenStack does does fade away. Um, but there's always going to be a need. There's always going to be some VMs sticking around. And so, mm. you know, rather than keeping a whole OpenStack cluster kind of up and running when that becomes the case, right? Let's let's say you've moved the majority of your things over to Kubernetes and the CNFs and what have you. Um, and you still have some VMs sticking around. There's there's some really interesting things. Like there's a project within Kubernetes called Kubevert and allows you to actually turn around and deploy VMs sitting on top of Kubernetes. Um, so it's a really cool project and actually something that we're supporting as well within Contrail. So uh, either way, kind of whatever direction you want to go, hey, I have my OpenStack cluster. Uh, I also have this Kubernetes project. How do I kind of look at these and bring these together? Um, Contrail is kind of the glue that's bringing that together from a networking perspective and from a networking security perspective uh, as well. And also giving you kind of you know, some visibility into what's happening in the network as well. Um, but when you get to that point where you say, look, now I want to go, boy, if I could just move these VMs, uh, these last remaining VMs I had over to something else, and I have my Kubernetes cluster over here, uh, Kubvert's really a, a good option for that. Um, another great example of the, the ecosystem uh, that's out there. Okay, so if I'm going to be in this transition state, I've got OpenStack and I've got Kubernetes, and I'm using Contrail, is there a synergy I'm getting there where I can manage my network commonly between those two? How does how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So with Contrail, we have a couple of different uh, capabilities that are in there. You know, our vRouter data plane can turn around and get deployed within OpenStack environments and within Kubernetes, as I mentioned before. And that consistent data plane turns around and allows us to leverage Contrail as an SDN to apply things like 
a um, unified security policy across both of those environments. So you could turn around and uh, we actually have the ability to uh, tag objects within Contrail and write security policy based upon those tags. So it's very, very flexible in that type of manner. We're not limited to uh, to policy written against IP addresses, for example. So I, I can and, tag a VM that's in um, OpenStack. I can tag a container that's in Kubernetes. And then again, based on the tags, uh, Contrail, uh, as I'm writing policy in Contrail, it doesn't care where the... That's right. Where that data source is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We do all the translation. Uh, all that just gets handled within Contrail. You don't have to get that exposed to trying to figure out how to write different YAML files and Helm charts and different things to kind of do this, right? So um, yeah, Contrail turns around and takes care of all that uh, for you and does the translation on the security side. Um, and we implement that directly within the vRouter. So the, the security enforcement is distributed as well. Um, yeah, provides a really clean transition as far as that goes. And then it's also all the, you know, it also provides a method for, for networking outside the cluster too, right? We have what we call an SDN gateway, and that's to turn around and bring ingress traffic coming into the cluster as well. I um, mean, you have a control point for that where you can de-encapsulate that data. And um, yeah, there's some other functionality, uh, the, the ECMP that we bring along with it, load balancing as a service uh, as well. So Sean, for people that are trying to get their heads around what it means that they could be in a transition and use Contrail the whole way over, I think it's important to highlight here Contrail is now a first-class citizen in Kubernetes. You're leveraging CNI. Um, get, get into a few of the details for us. Explain how that's working and what's happening. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, up until this point, we, we from a lifecycle management perspective, we kind of had this evolution of, of Contrail that's, that's come about. And, you know, it, it used to be in the early days, you had RPM packages to turn around and install it. And then, you know, we had some, some VM images and, and we went on to containers. Uh, really now the big, shift from an installation perspective of how does Contrail turn around and get installed um, as that extension of Kubernetes where we're saying, okay, these elements for the, for the uh, controllers within Contrail are custom Kubernetes controllers. And so what does that mean? Well, what that means is that they're a part of the Kubernetes, uh, the Kubernetes cluster. So now I can actually turn around and install Contrail on my MacBook using Minikube as just an example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a much, uh, much smaller, much lighter weight type of installation. Uh, we're leveraging all of the, the same constructs that are available there in the cluster for the application development itself. Um, so like I, I think I mentioned it before, etcd for, for the data store, we have this declarative configuration model. And, and what that really means is that uh, the lightweight nature of Contrail and being able to turn around and have that scale up and down horizontally as well, um, within the cluster as your cluster grows. We also support things like um, multi-cluster support and then also edge and, and remote kind of worker nodes as well, which I'll get into a little bit more details on that in a minute. But it, it, what it boils down to now is that if you wanted to turn around and you, you no longer have to have a, an open stack environment to install Contrail on, you can install it on any Kubernetes cluster. Uh, if you wanted to turn around and support Neutron as well and support your OpenStack environment through the Neutron plugin, that is still available um, within Contrail. What it used to be is that you deployed Contrail as a, it, on top of VMs, they were containers, but it was on top of VMs within OpenStack. And then we also provided a Kubernetes plugin for the networking stack. Now what we've done is you install Contrail on top of Kubernetes. So now it's a native component within the Kubernetes cluster. Yep. 
but we also provide a plugin for OpenStack via Neutron. So we've kind of reversed that a little bit, <laughs> right? Um, but at the same time, we've preserved the ability on the networking side uh, through all of our networking components to turn around and basically provide those same types of functionality that we've been developing in partnership with our telco and service provider customers for years. Uh, we're still able to provide those in a cloud-native fashion to both the OpenStack environment as well as that Kubernetes environment without having to turn around and, and, and duplicate those things or having to turn around and figure out hmm. how do I kind of do the networking between these two? And, and really where that the common thread there um, is a lot of that is through our, our data plane approach. So this is the Contrail vRouter that turns around and gets installed on the, the kernel. We also support DPDK. Um, so we have rich DPDK support and pretty much all of our customers are leveraging DPDK as well. And then uh, SRLV and, and SmartNIC support as well. So when you want to start leveraging some of the kind of the, the fast data plane attributes, you know, you can definitely do that. And that applies, again, both to uh, OpenStack environments, also these Kubernetes cloud native environments, our encapsulation uh, methodology where we use MPLS over UDP. Yeah. You can also use MPLS over GRE or VXLAN. That's the, the data plane component that's allowing all these to kind of communicate together, right? Because we're doing that from our vRouter. Um, so that's the data plane component that's allowing all these to turn around and say, hey, I have my uh, containers over here sitting inside Kubernetes on, you know, I have my pods and sitting inside these nodes. And I want to turn around and also have this VM and OpenStack, but I want those in the same virtual network. I want to provide network isolation where that VM is in the blue network, for example, talking to my Kubernetes pods that are in the blue yeah. network as well. And, and I don't care physically what box that stuff is on. It doesn't matter. So Contrail just does all that kind of under the hood. On a worker node, a Kubernetes worker node, does a Contrail vRouter sit in place of kubeproxy? Something like that? That's right. Yeah, ah, that's right. Okay. That's exactly right. So the, the vRouter is sitting in place of kubeproxy. Um, you don't have to deal with IP tables and those types of things. Uh, it's the vRouter goes and gets plugged in and, and uh, performs all that functionality. Well, you sort of just answered my next question then, but for people that are using Project Calico, pretty popular in the Kubernetes world, it feels like this replaces that. It's not a complementary thing. You would use Contrail instead of, is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you'd use Contrail instead of, uh, instead of Calico. Yep. And then what about service meshes? If I've got a sidecar proxy architecture, how does Contrail factor into that? Yeah, great question. So we basically work um, kind of hand in hand with those service messages, but Contrail is really focused on a lot of the networking, um, specifically a kind of the layer three, layer four area, right? So um, some of the more advanced uh, application level stuff that you're going to get with a service mesh, that service mesh can just ride right on top of Contrail. Um, there's no there's no conflict with that uh, whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it can ride right on top of it. Um, and then we're also looking down the road as well as to, to kind of building in some integrations from a visibility perspective to go say, okay, what makes sense to uh, visualize and represent some data within Contrail? And what makes sense to go ahead and have some of that data represented within uh, within the service mesh? Ah, that it, was kind of what I was wondering because one of the reasons you might do a service mesh is for uh, particular kinds of visibility, depending on what you're, what you're looking for and trying to accomplish when you want to stick your face into the data stream and see what's up. So... It sounds like, well, you're not doing encrypt decrypt within 
um, within a V router. You're just you're going to be passing those encrypted packets through. So, but but still, um, you, you can get a lot of telemetry opportunities there in that V router. I'm assuming, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely correct. Um, part of us maintaining the data plane stack and and really the the kernel module within V router, uh, we can pull a lot of telemetry out of that. Um, and, and it also gives us ability to kind of write whatever programs that we need to pull that telemetry out. Um, but yeah, we're not doing any type of like TLS decryption or, or you know, certificate, um, getting involved with a certificate there. But this is also where the tools like, like Grafana, for example, come into play, right? In this ecosystem, you can have the service mesh, you can have Contrail in place, and then you can go use common tools that are available um, and basically be able to go visualize things within uh, within that type of environment and build custom dashboards and look at different overlays and what have you that, that custom fit your needs. Hmm. Um, and then again, just the nature of that kind of ecosystem as well, there tends to be a lot of uh, a lot of openness and kind of sharing between folks on, you know, hey, I have this dashboard that I created in GitHub over here, go take a look at it and see if it works for your needs. Hmm. Hmm. So I've got a question here. Well, the Calico project has been around for a very long time and it's probably its sole advantage in the market is that it was actually a solution for Kubernetes networking when nothing else was. And I kind of wonder, one of the things that it strikes me about it is that there's a substantial difference between Contrail and Calico. Why aren't people using products like Contrail instead of the simpler a somewhat dumber because it, that's what it is. Pro, Calico project. What's the differences between the two? Yeah, that's a you know it's a really good question. I mean, Calico, you know, you could definitely say that it has that it has its place. And what we've seen too is people kind of you know start out with it, um, you know, and then they start looking for a little bit more you know kind of advanced type of functionality, mm. and they might find themselves coming over to to Contrail. Um, mm. So that's that's not to you know Calico is perfectly fine in a in a handful of situations. Um, the, the idea here, like with Contrail, for example, um, you know, if we think about all just the, the peer networking stack, right? So, you know, when you go to routing at scale, Calico, for example, uses like Bird for BGP. Um, and so it requires some integration kind of with the underlay and, and now nah, how do you create these BGP peerings? You know, our overlay approach um, that we have, you know, we're still leveraging BGP uh, for those yeah. environments as well. So it's common, you know, networking uh, protocols that are being brought to bear, but it allows us to turn around in the overlay and and really uh, distribute things out quite a bit. Again, all being managed by the SDN controller. Um, yeah, you know, within Calico Contra. depends a lot on weird things. It has to integrate in a lot of places. It's not abstracted from the underlying network, and it's, it's not not fully contained in itself either. It has these weird dependencies. Yeah, that's right. So, like with with Contrail, for example you can really use any underlay network protocol you want, right? It could be OSPF or SIS. We don't, from a purely Contrail perspective, we don't have much of a, you know, a strong opinion, it could be BGP, whatever you want to use. Um, now, elsewhere within the Juniper portfolio, of course, you know, Abstra, EVP and VXLAN data fabrics, those types of things that we bring to bear with, with kind of a, you know, a whole solution um, that Contrail can sit on top of. So, you know, within Juniper itself, of course, we have, uh, you know, solutions that that do that. Um, but yeah, from a purely Contrail perspective, we don't really care what you're doing in the underlay. Um, mm -hmm. There's no dependencies as far as that goes. Now- And Calico let, doesn't really have that, fight, like you were talking about the security policy 
you know, being able to control and filter at the edge of the network. Calico could do some of that, but it's it's kind of limited in how it goes about it, right? Yeah, it could, it could do a little bit of that. It really integrates like uh, with the Kubernetes network policies. Um, so it does a, you know, a network policy implementation. And that network policy implementation generally says things like, hey, I want, you know, um, uh, kind of this, these, these pods or these services to be able to talk to these other ones. Um, mm. But writing those policies gets a little bit confusing. Um, yeah. It can also get a little bit challenging as you start to add on to them, right? Anybody with any type of firewall background right, knows that this is not always the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, and it's also pretty hard to debug. Calico debugging gets pretty bent out of shape pretty quickly. Yeah, well, yeah. but the price is right, though. That's that's the argument yeah. that we haven't hit on yet. Some people are going to say the price is right for Calico. So, Sean, is there still an open source, purely free-to-me piece of Contrail at this point? I've kind of lost track of where open Contrail versus Contrail and all of that went. Yeah, Open Contrail a few years ago was was rebranded as uh, Tungsten Fabric within the Linux Foundation. So there's still absolutely the the Tungsten Fabric movement going on within the Linux Foundation from an open source perspective. Um, on the cloud native Contrail, you know, we have in essence some uh, free trials customers can come in and leverage and use um, in that space. And in um, yeah, the the free to me again, there's going to be areas in which. Uh, kind of the the do-it-yourself approach and people that want to go build that out with something like a Calico might be fine. Uh, mm. We we typically have, we've, you know, really seen a lot of customers kind of say, okay, they might start with that kind of approach. Um, and then they they find themselves needing some more advanced uh, advanced type of services yeah. um, and advanced functionality within their, within their network. Well, you know, it, there's other th- the complex overlay stuff that you get uh, just for one, just as core functionality. Right. That's just one example of it. And then when, you know, the other kind of component that you look into that as well, we, we do things, for example, just natively like ECMP, um, yeah. you know, so there's native, native ECMP for internal and external load balancing, by the way. Right. So you don't need an external load balancer to now go add on to Contrail to get this type of functionality. There's things within Kubernetes like ingress controllers and those types of things that we provide. Um, we're also doing all the, uh, you know, the IPAM and, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. DNS and DHCP type of services. So it's really about, you know, when I when I look at Contrail in that context, right, you, you have CNIs that are out there and you have like, you know, some, maybe we call them enhanced CNIs. They, they go beyond just the basic type of network policy functionality. They might provide a few other things, but Contrail is really a full SDN solution that's providing a CNI. So mm-hmm. the, the difference there to kind of think about is we're not just a CNI. We're not simply saying, I'm just gonna do this one network plugin thing and that's it. What we're bringing to the table is, I'm gonna provide you with a rich network ecosystem to control your cloud environments. Um, and this is going to you know, kind of address all of the different areas, whether that's Kubernetes services. Yeah, it's one thing to solve the basic controller. networking problem of connecting stuff. It's quite another thing to provide network services is what you're reaching for. Yeah. That, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and then, yeah. you know, we also have some other things in there too. Like, for example, let's say you have a bare metal server plugged into a top of rack switch. Mm. And for whatever reason, like you just can't virtualize it. Okay. That happens all the time, right? Um, I spent a ton of time in that space. Um, so you have this bare metal server plugged into your top of rack switch. And from a security perspective, you really want that to kind of sit in the same tenant as your, um, you know, some pods in your Kubernetes cluster that's providing the service over here or your OpenStack cluster as well, right? You want all those things to logically and virtually reside within the same network. 
Um, we also have functionality that turns around and just de-encapsulates that data and allows you to go do that. So you can, in essence, tie the VLAN on the top of rack switch that that server's plugged into, and that we turn around and route that traffic directly into the virtual network in the overlay, um, directly into Contrail to go handle that. So now you have this underlay and overlay paradigm in which your virtual network gets extended. Um, and again, you're maintaining tenancy, you're maintaining network isolation, that bare metal server is not going out and talking to the rest of the world if you don't want it to uh, type of thing. To tie this back to the beginning of our show, Sean, you know, we had said part of this is giving service providers the agility they need to stand up services that keep them uh, competitive with a cloud service provider. Is that, that a fair observation to make? It is. Yeah, that's right. It's definitely a fair observation. It's a, it's a whole, again, you know, it's really kind of changing the approach and the way that they look at the services that they provide and what's needed within a service provider to make that, to make that happen. Um, you know, and the, a lot of service providers we've been seeing it, they've put in a lot of work into it to, you know, up, up into this point, but the, the pressure's on, I think more than ever, um, you know, as we start to see some of the, the cloud providers also kind of start to enter into the service provider market of services they're providing. Yeah. The telcos, uh, you know, as you say, the service providers are now having to compete with other people for the first time, not just each other, but entrance from external, um, and they have to get cheaper and faster or they're going to get disrupted. It, they should be able to make the transition. At the end of the day, they are yeah. technology companies. They have to adopt change. It's being forced onto them, really. That's right. So, Sean, to try to tie this technical nerdy discussion we've been having about Contrail back to the top of the show, we set this up making the point that service providers need more ability to compete with what the cloud service providers are uh, now offering as competitive offerings in the space. And if they begin doing the cloud native thing, they have that agility at a, at a reasonable cost too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, you know, so, you know, we look at it from that perspective, right? The cloud service providers, in essence, there's going to be a level of partnership there with, with, uh, between the cloud providers and the service providers. Uh, we'll continue to see some level of partnership and, and service providers shouldn't necessarily shy away from that. I think they should just be cautious as they kind of enter into that, into that arena um, if they continue to really enhance, they being service providers, continue to enhance their uh, their investments in the space and their investments in cloud native technologies, and learn from the, the the cloud providers and really the methodology and the way that they operate. Right, I think to mm -hmm. me that's that's the big takeaway. Now, is there going to be areas in which um, it makes sense to use some of the cloud infrastructure? Um, and use some of their services to maybe test some things out. Sure, that could very well be the case. But I think ultimately what the service providers want to do is really control their own fate. And the best way to do that is to leverage the infrastructure that they've already built out and they've invested in um, and build on top of that. We're, we're going to continue to see things happen in the, you know, the 5G space and the edge space as well. Um, and so this is really the area I think that, uh, you know, service providers focus on that and ensure that they're not just providing a pipe um, or a tail end for somebody else to to go reach somebody, you know, for somebody to go reach somebody else's infrastructure <laughs> right. and, and build upon <laughs> it, right? So um, that's really, I think, the the big moment that's upon all the service providers uh, to execute on. So, Sean, for the architects and engineers that are listening, they want to dig into Contrail some more, uh, where would you send them? Landing pages, URLs, uh, anything you'd like to recommend? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can always find our things at juniper.net. There's a there's a whole page, landing page on Telco Cloud that's available there too, underneath solutions. And then, you know, feel free to uh, reach out to us on social media. Um, mm-hmm. So there's the Juniper Networks tags available on social media um, that's available as well. And then, of course, if you're, uh, you know, if you already have your Juniper account team, that's always a great way to go. Now, Sean, one one more thing for the people that heard Minikube and Contrail and got excited. Is there any uh, magical incantation to be able to get Contrail up and running on Minikube? There is. What they can do is just turn around and um, let's see the best way to reach out. We'll provide some information on the best way for them to reach out uh, to us to take a look at it. Um, And so, yeah, we'll get some access on there. Okay, so look for that in the show notes for this episode at packetpushers.net. If you want to dig in more into Contrail, fire it up on your laptop and give it a spin. Our thanks to Juniper Networks for sponsoring today's episode. And our very most special thanks, however, to you for listening because you're awesome. To connect with the mighty world of Packet Pushers more deeply because we know you want to. We're on Twitter at Packet Pushers and we are on LinkedIn. And we have a free to everyone Slack group at PacketPushers.net slash Slack. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.